Hello, this is Curtis Salgado. You're listening to Talking Blues. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. One more time. Hello. Can you hear me? This is like interview number six, and not a fucking thing has happened that's any different than before. <laughs> I play music, I sing, I'm trying to be black, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. Can I go now? <laughs> okay, we're done. I was, do you want to hear a story? Yes, I'd like we to We were in Thailand, and we were playing, we, I was on a festival that was put on by an ex-airline pilot. He used to fly around the world, and he had discovered this guitar player, and uh, the guitar player was playing blues. There's a white kid that played blues, but he was kind of lost back in the 70s rock style, blues rock. Really, and he, and he had hair down to his butt, and he was a, he was a good, decent guitar player. He wasn't a, he was generic, and but this airline pilot retired, had made connections in Thailand, and he was putting together a blues festival, and he'd already pulled off a couple of them, so he gets me to come, and this guy, guitar player, whose name escapes me is going to back me up. Along with him came Walter Wolfman's Washington, his saxophone player. His name is Jimmy Carpenter. And here's the story. So this guy puts together this festival, and on the same festival was Mason Ruffner. And we go and do this interview in uh, Phuket, Thailand. And uh, the DJ says to Mason Ruffner and goes, what, if anything, what would you wish for in your life? Can I just ask you this guy's this question? And Mason Ruffner goes, of all the things, I wish I was black. And I just thought that was the coolest thing to say. Well, I'm here with Curtis Salgado. He's joining us is Curtis's good friend, Bruce Greenaway, in the back. Bruce Greenaway? Bruce! I love Mason Bruce. I do. Not, I mean, not in a biblical way. I mean... Um, how have you been? I've been good. Yep. Health is good. Health is good. Yeah. I'm still at the cancer table. But you know, that's I just have not been excused from the cancer table. But this is just follow up, check up, make sure that everything's cool. Yeah, they're you know they're concerned, and that's all I'll say. It's like, well, well, I feel great, and that's what matters. One day at a time. You take it one day at a time. And you also had some issues with your heart last year. Was it last year? I did, two years and they from... fixed that. Pretty, I had a quadruple bypass surgery. Looking good. And, uh, yeah. You know, I didn't realize I was having a heart attack. And I, it was just basically, and I'd like to underline the word mild. Right. A mild, dull ache in the, my back. And I couldn't get comfortable. This My drummer at the time is a kid from Guam. And really, the island of Guam, and he looks at me and he goes, man, are you okay? I go, man, I can't get comfortable. He jumps down next to me. He's kind of like, he's, you know, he's fit yoga guy, man, and he starts to massage the back of my neck. And this isn't something, you know, we do is start massaging each other and as we're traveling. And he starts to massage the back of my neck, and all of a sudden, my mouth fills up with saliva, just like a 
like somebody took a squeeze bottle with both hands and went squirt from right underneath my tongue. Just whoop, my cheeks puffed out. And he looks at me and goes, pull over. I think Curtis is going to be sick. And the van pulls over. I get out. I spit the stuff out. My road manager follows me. His name is Michael Kreider. So we call him Kreider. He gets out. Kreider comes up and says, you okay, man? What's up? I go, man, you sick? Not anymore. I, I just, all of a sudden, my mouth just filled up with saliva. I'm not stomach, bile, or anything. It was just right from under the tongue. He goes, wow, that's weird. We discussed it. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. So uh, how do you feel now? I said, I feel great. Now, we have another person who's in this talk, and he gets out of the car, and he's a driver. So, and he says, hey, there's a... There's an emergency room 15 minutes down the road from here. Do you want to go there? I said, no, not no, not really. It's a gig. You're on the road. Mm-hmm. You, I'll lose money. And so I said, no. So we get back in the van. We're traveling. And um, 10 minutes go by. And then all of a sudden I look, and here's this building. And by this point, we're coming from. Here's the trip. We're coming and just played the night before in Rockland, Maine at the Time Out Tavern. Paul, who's here, uh, we had left in the morning, and by this point, we're in Vermont, and there's nothing for miles around. And all of a sudden, this brick building comes up in the middle of nowhere in this emergency room. And Kreider goes, pull in, and I'm in the back of the van, and all of a sudden, we're pulling in, and I go, to myself, I'm thinking, okay, I get it, I get it. And I look at the van, and we and he parks. And so we're going in, huh? Michael says, yeah, we've got to check you out. So I look at the fellows, and I say, hey, I'll see you guys in 20 minutes. I didn't see him. That was May, June, July, August. I didn't see those guys until July. Wow. Uh, I and think it was May. It's March. Yeah. And you were there for how many? You were there for three I months? I was in for two weeks, and then I took over three months off. And then I saw the, the first time I saw the band was uh, at a couple of rehearsals, July 1st and 2nd, and then we played July 4th. How difficult was that recovery? It was difficult in terms of you have to sit up a lot. You, have to, you can't lay down on your side. You can't play like this. You can't play like that. You have to sit up straight for three months. Like so that's this. how you're sleeping. That's how you're sleeping. Wow. You can't cross your legs. You can't put your, you know, you want to stretch out on your stomach. and You know, you want to, you can't do that. You got to lay straight. And my chest is wired. It's still there. There's wires that hold my ribs together. And they stay that way. And they're not like a thread that will dissolve as time goes on. I'm wired together. Isn't that weird? And I feel great. I can feel a little... There's a little, uh, you could feel right here a couple of lumps. You know, they have like a little hitch lock thing. It's pulling it all together. Weird. But you're feeling good. I feel good. It takes you, they cut you open from here down, pull your ribs apart, and operate it on me for four hours. And then they wire it all back together. And then you recover, and eventually this bone fuses together. And that takes nine weeks or something. And then you go to physical therapy, which is, they put uh, 
they put electrodes on you and stuff like that and they hook you up and they walk around with iPads that have all your information and you're in a thing with other people. Most of them are quite older than I am. And uh, there's a few people, you know, I'm 64 years old, but I mean, there's people in there that are in the 70s and 80s. This is my third stint, you know. I mean, it's like, I mean, so... You know, so uh, I I got to say something. Here's a nice little joke. <laughs> is uh, it's a nice joke? Is the doctor looks at me. They're trying to figure out who I am, and they're trying to you know. So let's see. You've had cancer, liver transplant, mm, cancer metastasized into your lungs, a lung operation. Oh, a lung removed. So you've had cancer three times, and your lung removed, and a liver transplant, and now you're going to get quadruple bypass surgery. And the guy goes. You're kind of a cockroach, actually. It's like you're a cockroach. And I thought it was pretty funny. It's like, yeah, you're right. I am a cockroach, you know. So I figure I have four lives left, you know. Not that a cockroach has nine lives, but a cat. So how do you... It's like, so far, I've... How do you deal with that? I, and I asked not just because I've had some health issues, and it's been difficult. And I just wonder how you maintain... You know, I meant what I said... I meant when I said to you, I don't know, yours is, you know, would be annoying as fuck. And, of course, you've gotten used to it. And you're, so it's the same thing. I'm not thing. sure if I'm used to it, but. All right. Yeah. But, but there are not, times when you don't think about it. More recently. Think? I mean, yeah, it's yeah. been a year of It's been a about year it. and it takes a while. But okay. it, it was never life and death. And, and yeah. in your case, all four of them always yeah. have been life and death. And how do you, how do you deal with that? I think whether I think one day at a time. You know that's a that's a little saying from twelve step program. One day at a time. But truly, I don't know if they're the ones who came up with that. But you take life one day at a time. Just you know because that's you live in the moment. It's all about living in the moment. But every time I've talked to you, and not that we've talked a lot, but I talk to you semi regular. You're, right. You're always positive you always you're never you, negative like you, i don't think you I've don't ever... you don't oh, i'm negative i'm a smart ass you know that i'm a <laughs> well, i know i'm that, cynical but... you know no but i mean especially when it comes to music <laughs> i'm cynical however you're absolutely right um what choice do you have that's true and if i keep you, telling you know, myself sit there this, and but... cry your eyes out and all that that's it's not moving forward but, I don't I mean, have a choice. You know, I, it's it's better to be, uh, you know. But it's always been like that? You've always been like that? I, as far as I know, that's how I was raised. My whole family's like that. Because that's an amazing gift to have, I right. think. Well, I don't know. I never think about that. It's, it's, I don't know. if To me, it's pure pragmatic logic. Well, it does make total sense. Yeah. However, you know, you've gone through a lot, and I can I can't imagine I, I can easily imagine there might be days where you feel down and out and oh sure mostly it's like how come them and not me that's really I'm, I'm going to tell you that's one that I that I fight with all the time Sorry. but how come not them? like not like fight with it but have to like now Curtis you know pull yourself together and grow up kind of thing how come, how come them and not me I'm not Should getting that what? Why are they just put out a record? Oh, they okay. suck, 
and they're actually just got on stage with Paul McCartney. Or why is, you know, how did I miss that train? And then you erase it. I don't think it nearly as much at all as I used to think that because I'm very competitive. Mm-hmm. But you got to watch your ego, man. I'm not. I'm just blessed. you got to think I'm blessed and whatever. I also give credit where credit's due. Right. You know, no, I pride myself in that. I want to tell people, you know. With all that. You, you know, you can say this and you'll watch me do this. I have no idea. I don't, I don't, I'm up for a Soul Blues Award <laughs> against Wee Willie Walker and I don't know who else and who else. Wee Willie Walker is one I can think of. Oh, this guy, uh, Don Bryant. Is that, is that, how do you say his name? Bryant, I think. Yeah, Don Bryant. So now I know who he is, you know. And a lot of people out there don't. But I do since I was a teenager. You know, I've seen his name on all the O.V. Wright stuff. And O.V. Wright is like probably one of my biggest influences. O.V. Wright is the deepest soul singer of all time, I think. And that's hard southern soul. Mm-hmm. And uh, Donald Brandt wrote a lot of Byron. How do you say his name? Bryant. Bryant? Donald Bryant. Yeah, I think so. Is, wrote a lot of his hits. Close, close friends with Willie Mitchell. He's a great, great. And he's up. So if I win, and you can run this, if I win, well, that's really nice and stuff, but it's, you know, I don't know. Are you nuts? I just, I'm very aware of what it is. It's, that's a popularity contest. I won more votes because more people know about me because I'm in this circle than we Willie Walker, who's just kind of came in. Right. But, uh, you know, I stole everything from these guys you know and if i was to win which i i don't see how that's possible but you won last year did you i won yeah i won but that you know and i'm not even up for this uh i'm not even up for this so this sounds like i'm bitching i'm just blessed to be here i'm not bitching i'm just saying like i'm in a category that i don't even have any record out in it's nothing new this that and if i win then, you know, it's just like, I haven't even thought of what I would say, but I think I'm going to tell you guys now, I would, I would say, I stole everything from them, you know. I hope you're not going to forget Bruce's name when you go. No. Yeah, you, <laughs> I like to I like to sing, uh, Bruce Greenway. Is Greenaway. Greenaway. I'd like to thank Bruce Greenway, please. Whoops, I messed up his name. <laughs> Sorry, Brucey, but it's you and me, babe. <laughs> it's okay. They won't hear for all the cheering. You know. Yeah, yeah. Don't Cross your fingers. Maybe I'll win, and then I can say your name. That's more important, I think, than... I'm serious. You're not I am really... <laughs> <laughs> With the health issues you've had, has that affected your singing at all? No. Not yet. Wow. Has it affected the way you think about things? Always, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, my first trip was um, to get a liver transplant, which we've probably talked about. Right. You know? And that's like, it makes everything, I don't mean people, place, and things, but I mean the things that people worry and waste their time with and how you view life. It's all meaningless. It is all meaningless. The politics, 
the crap that you see on television, the things that people wind themselves up with and talk about over and over and over and over and over and over. They're making news. There's fake news. This, this, all of that stuff is true. And, and, and you know what? Uh, Andy Warhol was right. Everybody's got 50, everybody, you know, gets 15 minutes of fame. Unfortunately, that 15 minutes is, is now gone because everybody can voice their opinion constantly all day long on their on their internet. Mm -hmm. You know, way back when in England in Hyde Park, you'd stand up on a soapbox and give your opinion. Right. And and you know, but now it's just like complete knuckleheads, asinine, uneducated, absolutely no class people mixed in with people who are educated and do have class or do have a sense of mixed in with this person and this and this and this. And then you really see human nature at its worst, you know, because nobody has a nice thing to say about anybody mm -hmm. or even an empathy. There's no empathy. You're looking at somebody who you admire and somebody goes, well, what a great movie. And then two things down is like, <laughs> I really like his shoes, you know, but I don't know why in the hell he wore those pants. What the fuck? Are you kidding me? You're looking at somebody like this and you're thinking, you know, you know, I would, you know, my mom used to wear those pants or something stupid. You know, it's just like, God. and I'm being nice. Yes. And then there's the people who are, you know, just, just mean, just to be mean. I don't want to hear from them. They suck the air out of everything. They're oxygen thieves to, to me. Yeah, yeah. You know. I always remember interviewing B.B. King and him talking about playing music that was had a positive message and how, yeah. that impo how important it was for him to do that. And I've right. had other musicians talk about the positive mes message. Yeah, not all of it can be positive, no, but you but certainly think about it. And I'll tell you what, here's another angle. is like, let's see, do I want to put out a positive message or a negative message? Do I want to bring up something that should be talked about or do you want to play nice and hey you know just have and some people do that quite well to me I, i'm i want the whole spectrum you know but you have to understand like which one is going to you hope that people pick up on right is the positive one you know but there's also humor. there's a lot of really edgy songs though that tell it like it is that i i love very much you know can you give me an example uh not right offhand, but if I think about it, okay. you know, how about just strict hardline politics like Rage Against the Machine or something? Right. You know, I love those guys. You know, great band, great music, great energy, and, and this guy who's rapping that's, you know, and he's telling it like it is, you know. And, uh, but you know what? You're not going to find that on. Basically, most songs and stuff are about love lost, love gained. Right. This boy hurt me. This boy loves me. I want this boy, or you know, not me. I mean, <laughs> this girl hurt me. I love this girl. She's fine. You know, she broke thanks, my heart. Thanks for clarifying yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but humor is also a huge part of what you do. I don't know if it's huge, but I hear humor in, in many of the songs. That oh you know, yeah, or irony or whatever. Yeah. Where does that come from? I'm a goofy guy. Yeah, I like I like humor. Yeah, and I think I think satire and comedy and stuff is a great way to, in irony, 
is a great way to give a message out. So I, I think I told you your last album or your latest album I think is brilliant. Thank you. And when I first heard it, and for whatever reason, I thought, oh, it's an acoustic album. It's not going to be amazing. And I put it on, and from the first note, I thought, holy shit, this is an amazing album. It just grabbed me. Good. Good. But I wonder, and we... I just thought of a song. Keep going. Okay. No, go ahead. Uh, In God is the song by Bob Dylan. There's a good one for you. Um... What is it? in the name of God or something like that, where he names all the battles, and, and you know, in, in the name of God we do this and that. You know, that's that's a deep message. I wish yeah. I could think of. I've heard Bob Dylan do it, and I've heard Aaron Neville do it. The lyrics are amazing. Aaron. And Neville. to go back what you're saying, I, that was a nice compliment. I, I appreciate that. Um, Tell me the thinking behind acoustic, that Acoustic. When you think of acoustic, especially the people, that stuff that's coming out over the last few years, over the last five years, let's say, um, the acoustic is uh, in the market of, in our blues idiom here, and this award ceremony and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. To me, it's they're playing at it. They're not in it. Mm -hmm. They have this surface idea of what acoustic blues is. And you know, I know it's going to be raw, kind of black keys, and we'll just we'll just have a drum and a, and a raunchy guitar. We'll just play real simple and strip down. We'll strip it down and just be you know. Except that it's just it's not. You know, when you listen to Blind Blake or Blind Willie uh, Johnson or Skip James, Robert Johnson, Tommy McLennan, or you hear these guys or Sunhouse. When you hear those guys, those guys are serious. And those guys are accomplished musicians. You know, some of them are guitar playing and guitar playing that nobody's gonna emulate. Can't touch. Right. Can't touch Blind Blake. You know, Blind Blake is a guitar player who's blind that would listen to piano players and is playing piano on his guitar playing fingering that you're not supposed to be able to do, but he doesn't know rules and regulations. And these type of guitar players and those type of musicians are coming out. They're quite accomplished, technically, musically, constructively, singing, everything is there. That's what I wanted to make. So our opening song, much to Bruce Iglauer's uh, credit, is like, you know what, Curtis? We want to open up this, this album with this song called uh, I will not surrender, and that's the first one you yeah, hear. Yeah. It's just me and a guitar. It's haunting, and it's haunting. Yeah, and we pulled it off, but that's what I wanted. I mean, it's just like, oh yeah, here's here it is. Really, it's it's just like, follow this, and lo and behold, they got it at Alligator, which really made me go, oh, okay. It was validating, and it was like, okay. I said, man, this is such a tough tune. I knew it was tough. Alan knew it was tough. We knew it was tough. And, you know, it's going to fly by and who cares. But in a small little circle, and me and Alan, it's like that was enough right there. So where they opened up the album with a slow, deep blues song, you know. So explain tough. Why is it tough? Just it's tough in terms of wicked, tough in terms of 
sharp. It's tough in terms of like a punch. Like, I got, man, I, it's just, it's the shit. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's the blues. But did you know? It's the blues. It's not surface. It's in it. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, no, you I mean, said I, you I played hear, the first song. And I that, hear the yeah, first yeah. few notes and I think, yeah, whoa. Whoa. Yeah. What is, what's going on here? And then the lyrics come out and, and we just looked at each other and we locked. And he played that, you know, that's a deep ass blues tune. But we pulled it off sonically. Yeah. I think. Tell me about Alan. I don't know anything about Alan. Alan is a guitar teacher in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he's been in the, he's like all of us, uh, in the Caucasian community uh, that play blues and soul, right, whatever. It's just like, man, this is the music that he grew up listening to it, and he wanted to play guitar. And of course, you know, there's tons of music to fall into, but the why do I do what we do? Why do you do? You're interested in it. And you're not here just to, you're really interested in what makes us tick. And you're interested in all the other art aspects in the world and everything. And that's what we all do. And, you know, and what Alan is about is that very thing. The same as me. It's like, what is this? It, it moves me. I want to be part of this. And before I knew about color and racism and segregation and blues or blues or American history or black and white or this or, you know, this music hit me and I knew I didn't know the background stories, you know. And then the more you learn about, you're wondering, you know, really? You mean what, you know, and then you want to explore all these different things, don't you? Mm -hmm. You know, what makes, you know, what makes Picasso and Cubism, you know, he, he deliberately set out to change the world of art. Deliberately. You know, and that's saying something in that story. So to me, it's like, what makes this music, you know, God, this makes me feel good. This does not make me feel good in music, but this one does. This moves me, this does not move me. But when you're creating... So you know what I mean? So I'm like, I, you know, and I want to do that. I want to move somebody like that. I want to make music that moves people and moves me and moves other people. I want to I want to create something that shakes things up. And how come this person is capable of doing that? And I'm also and the people that are the doers and the shakers and the innovators of anything I'm I'm interested in, especially music. So, so, but when you're creating this, do you know, like, if you hit the mark or not, why you're doing it? Yes, I do. And I, you know, I do know if I've hit the mark. And some stuff is like, that's a, you know, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> so it keeps you humble, you know. <laughs> I think that's great. And then other stuff I go like, God, I could sing that better. I could play that better. I could have written that better. I shouldn't have played this or that. But that's, that's the fun of it, really. I could sit there and, you know, complain about, oh, you did the, but really, it's the fun. Okay, That's, so, to go back to your answer, that is what really, that is what really, when you get, and somebody says, you got six months to live unless you get a liver transplant. You know, how much is a liver transplant? It's a, it's a million bucks mm -hmm. somewhere. And so I was told that. I don't know about you, but I don't have a million dollars. And somebody says, you got six months to live. Unless you get a liver transplant, it's the only way. It's too late. Your cancer's too big. So it's, it's, that changes your mood of things. And that's the reason on the other side. It's like, what's oh, so interesting. 
is, you know, that's why you do what you do. I want to know what makes things tick. Mm-hmm. And the other things just kind of dim out of view. <laughs> it's not important. What's important is getting along with your fellow man. What's important is taking responsibility for when you screw up and treating one another with love and respect, having empathy for your enemies and people you don't like and learn how to like and what is their point of view and all the stuff that is so not happening. Does it worry you what, what's going on in, in the U.S. right now or in oh, the world? Oh, yeah. You know what it worries me about is, don't you have a, do you have kids? I have step, yeah, step kids. Step kids or kids or family that are younger. Or, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. On one hand, you know, we're kind of shifting away here. But yeah, I, I, it doesn't look good for our heroes. Right. I think that sometimes. And sometimes I'm like, you, Bruce, and you, Marco, see, I'm practicing. That's just the truth. You guys make me feel good. You know that? I, I so get a kick out of you. And so get a you know, we can talk about this stuff. But isn't that what life is about? Yeah. That's what it's about. What else is, is there? A good meal, a this and all this, and then the crap that we turn on and we see CNN and this and that. You know how many weeks now they've been arguing about the FBI, Mueller, and this guy, and, and they've made a long-ass story. I just said, shut the fuck up and move on to something else, and, and then it will all raise its ugly head again, and we can get on with ourselves. So they're just making, they're sucking up our energy mm-hmm. and their own energy. Don't you have something better to do than to talk for hours, weeks, months, half a year about the same subject? And then they find a little thing. Oh, my God, did you see you wore a pocket watch on the other hand instead of, or in the other pocket? Oh, my God, what does that mean? Oh, Jesus, I hope that Ken John Wong likes that or whatever. You know. What if he doesn't? Well, it means this. And they go on and on and on and on and on and on. I know this is all edited. It's the shit. Oh, no, I did, I'm not editing. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, good Lord. These people said, you're not? Because <laughs> I'm wasting your time. I'm an oxygen thief now. No, no, this is the rule. Just, I don't I'm edit. Just, <laughs> this is a I gotta conversation. Get back. <laughs> so, what have was you the, had Bobby Rush in here yet? I interviewed him a few years ago. Uh, yeah. Um, tell me about the thinking behind doing this album. Like, why did you decide to do this album the way it was? Real simple. You, you know, you gotta, you need to put something out. That's it. It's all about the reading the temperature of today's times and how records make and how the hype, the hype thing works. The hype thing meaning record sales or getting notes. There are artists out there that are making records every five minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's it. You got to keep yourself there. So uh, we got to put out a record. So um, the beautiful lowdown came out. I had a heart attack. I didn't quite get to finish the runs. I lost thousands of dollars, thousands. And and uh, I gotta come up with something. Okay, I'm bounced, I'm back. Let's so you can't liquor. just go back to the beautiful lowdown? 
I do. You know, we still have it for sale, you know. Right, yeah. So in my show, I do everything that, you know, I pick songs that nobody's doing out there, you know, something from my record collection or something that interests me. And then I have songs from every one of my records. So you can find this. And, and, and really, I'm not even thinking about that. It just ends up that way. But for the last few records, I'm out touring behind the beautiful loadout. And so now I made this acoustic record because you've got to put product out. If you don't put product out, then it would have been almost two years since you've seen product. But now I have this record coming out, and I'm finishing up writing another record, which I start recording in September. So boom, another one. And then boom, another and another and another. And the whole thing with this is just like, I got to keep clever, keeps you on your toes. You got to think of things to put out and do. And you got to keep in front of, and meanwhile, just bit by bit, piece by piece, you're building a fan base. This is how this business works. And this day and age, this is how it is. It's all hype. It's push and hype. So Samantha Fish will come out with a record in about five minutes. And then in about, and then, you know, Joe Bonanasa will come out with a record in another six months, even though he just made a record three minutes ago. Mm-hmm. So it's just that this is it. So I have my record coming. I'll be recording in September. By next time, another record will come out. And then another one. And that's the whole thing. You've got to put out, you know, shit, I'm going to make a poker record. I'm going to make a Christmas record. I'm going to, you know, Christmas record. But all Christmas songs that I write myself, you know, that nobody will even pay attention to. I'm trying to be funny here. All Christmas songs that are... What will you call it? You know, um, I'm sick of this elevator music. No, um, I wouldn't. God okay. bless mommy and daddy. I don't know. Christmas. You got it. Yeah, God, God bless Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, Curtis is good. Curtis's Christmas. Yeah, Curtis Salgado's Christmas. Get so, enough S's in there. Okay, so ever since I first saw you. I'm sorry, I missed that. Curtis's Christmas cockroach. <laughs> there it is. So ever since I first saw you, and I had this conversation with Ruthie Foster recently. Mm-hmm. She has the same effect. When, when I see her, she can do no wrong on stage. I just think she's amazing. She right? is amazing. And you are amazing. Well, that's nice. And I, I, and I don't know. I don't think so. here's so. the thing. I'm not sure if it's just because... I like you so much. Right. No, and then, no, no. Because we're friends. Yeah, like there's a, there's a connection and you've right. always been very nice to me or whatever. But, but there is this thing that there's a connection between you and I and, and I, I don't know if it's because of that that when I watch you I think, man, he's good. But I've seen you, you know, do some amazing things on stage. That is a high compliment. You want to know why? Because you're good people. And that's why. It no. isn't you're not you're like somebody I look up to. I don't think of us as competitive. I mean, you feed me. You know, I want to be good and I want to be good for you and I want to be good for you. Yeah. But the other thing is, is this like these guys are on the same page I am. You know, you're both a couple of knuckleheads, right? We're a bunch of knuckleheads. No, and just because I, I play music doesn't make me, you know, oh, you know, people make too much of, of entertainment. And I got a, I'm part of it, too. I'm right in the track. I look at somebody like Aaron Neville, and people make fun of him. And I, I'm like, what? 
this guy is remarkable. Mm-hmm. What a great singer. I know singing voices, so I just look at those other people and go, they, they don't really understand the mechanics of it or what's going on or what it takes to do what he's doing. And, and you know what they go, he's this big monster of a muscle man, yet he has the voice of an angel. He's singing his butt off with mm-hmm. a gorgeous voice, and he has control of it. And he can put across any story, and it's believable, and that is soul. And I don't care if you have a crummy voice, you put it out. And if it's believable, it has soul. Even Bob Dylan, which I never used to like, I realize in getting more mature, is has soul. Hank Williams has got soul. Hank Williams is just this, you know, he wanted to keep things simple. From what I understand, so he didn't want a lot of this particular, he just wanted stark instruments, stark stuff. He didn't want any fancy jazz chords. He wanted straight ahead down the street because that's that's what he understood. And that's what the people, those that keep the country going and those that are, you know, uh, they're not rogue scholars, but just the people pick up on it. He's a soul singer, a soul singer. Everybody, well, well that means you have to be black. And no, uh-uh. you know, I'm sorry. Beethoven writes soul music. There's some pieces by Beethoven that are just piano pieces that are so bluesy and so moving. You know the guy's brokenhearted. Mm-hmm. You know. He writes it because he's writing to some 14-year-old he's got a crush on, right? And she's not paying attention to him. <laughs> he writes this, you know, whatever. I wrote this for you, you know. (laughs) Right? It's soul music, man. It's like, you know, it's a feeling. But I was going to ask you. And I'm going on and on because, as usual, I love the sound of my voice. (laughs) But that is, that's it. That's why I have big respect for, I don't think of myself as better than anybody no i'm not trying to make that point i was just going to say that you have a certain standard though Mm. you know which i presume that you say okay i'm going to get a band together and this is the level that i want them to play at and and that level seems to always connect when i watch you and think good god he's good but that level that you set for yourself and i'm not just saying you there are many great musicians who are out there who just bring it every night like how do you get to that level? Like, if I would have seen you 30 years ago, would, would that have been the same level? That's a damn good question. By myself, I've always been like that. It depends on the team you get around you. I kind of put things like a, like a ball team or basketball team. And the same with the songwriting. I'm not going to go off track this time, but like, for instance, you frame the song, and can you put together that frame that you framed it with, the right bass player, the right musicians that understand how to play for the song? There's so many musicians that you'll get there, you'll get a musicians, and then pretty soon they become bored with the music after two weeks, and then they start to inject their own stuff in the middle of it. Nothing wrong with that. As long as it's to the song and helps the song, as long as it lends itself to the song, that's cool. But as soon as they get into self 
and you know what? I'm gonna play this cool riff right here. So yeah, you gotta put it in at the right time. It's gotta feel right and whatever. If you're just doing that to masturbate all over the tune, then it doesn't work. And that's kind of what you see. Right. And especially in guitar players, of course, who have a bad rep of doing that, but that's because they keep doing it. <laughs> they just keep masturbating all over. So it's like, Jesus, that's not really selling the tune, you know. But let's say, let's so so yes, I have a high standard. Do you have a high standard? We all you should have a high standard because you'd be doing yourself a disservice, I think. And the other thing is is uh, if it's from that baseball movie, I remember that if you build it, they will come, and if you build it, they'll they'll right, come. Right. Yeah, you know you got something. But to, an example would be like too loose. When I hear it on the album, it's a good song. It's enjoyable. Right. It's, when I see it live and you execute that harmonica thing, that right. long solo, right. it's magical. And then I remember the first time seeing you at the Silver Dollar. And it was just like... You, the Silver Dollar in Wyoming? No, in Toronto. Oh. And you had just... <laughs> I'm going almost. Yeah. <laughs> Close. But the next block. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you played that, and it was like insane. And the way you just kind of lifted the whole place up with oh, the solo. But why do you think that? Oh, so the the recorded version happened, and then, you know, you're on stage, and that song lends itself to kind of open and jam. Right. And that's what we started doing. Then this new bass player came in, and one night he played something, and we all kind of followed in and jamming. And we, I, hey, keep that. And the next night we kept this certain part. And then another new musician comes in, and I sat down with the piano player and I said, let's play this harmonica solo that's on the record here. And I wasn't, you know, let's take the one, and I wasn't doing this. And I said, let's go back to this and let's you and I play a soli, is what they're called. This is where we're going to play a solo, but more than one person is playing the same thing. They call those a soli. So the whole band's going to play the solo. That started as an improvised line. So now the piano player's playing it with me. And then pretty soon, hey, the guitar player picked up on it. So uh, actually, I wrote it all out in a piece form of music. So now I have the entire horn section playing it. So there's that harmonica part. Then it was like, like when I started jamming, these little gags, I call them. They're little punchlines and gags. And we give each other musical cues. And now the damn song's longer than the Asian flu. I mean, it's, it's like yeah, it's a 30 huge. minute song, but it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And it's, it's turned into a harmonica rave up kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of my other ver it's my harmonica showpiece. Other than like Kim Wilson has got, of course, the the harmonica shuffle, right. which you know many harmonica players have done that, mm -hmm. you know, and he does it amazing. Um, but that's that's that George harmonica Smith or little Walter fast shuffle on a harmonica, a fast boogie up shuffle, blowing a harmonica. You know, well, I, I if I did that, then it's then it's Rod Piazza and, and or you know, it's kind of been done. Right. So mine is that New Orleans Toulouse thing. And that's what it morphed into. So that's why the record isn't like whatever. It no, changed I understand that. But now can you can you go on the road without playing that song? Yeah. 
I I haven't played that song in about three years. I don't know why you don't come to my neighborhood more often. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is I had some pretty outstanding drummers, and uh, the drummer that I have now, I you know, is very good. But I had a few drummers here recently. It's like we don't have time. Da 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 da. I got a new record out. We need to push the record, and that kind of changes your set list. Right. Okay. Speaking of set lists. So as the years go by and you keep releasing more albums, there are other songs that just kind of lose their way. That's right. And, yeah. and there might be some songs that are my favorites that you won't play anymore. Oh, I, I, that depends. <laughs> Name off of one of your favorites. Just patience. Yeah, patience is one that uh, is written by a guy named Willie Barber, who texted me. Funny, you should say that this morning, and I haven't heard from him in months. Wow. And. Uh, and Willie Barber wrote that song. It's and more of a rock song for it you. It is a rock and roll song with uh, Sonny Landreth playing on it. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to do... Uh, I wanted to do his song. I thought it was really cool. I think I could do it better now, but it's too late, and it really doesn't... I don't... I don't really think it fits. Hmm. Well, I guess... Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So, what... I always you know, think it has metaphoric stuff, and not, there's nothing wrong. It was just like the other real reason is, is uh, I'd kind of like to come up with my own song right. or be a part of it. But that was totally Willie Barber's tune. He's brilliant, a brilliant songwriter, way a lot of talent and stuff. So he brought me the song, and I agreed to do it. And I thought, yeah, this is cool. But uh, now it's kind of like it doesn't really fit. So he didn't text you say, why aren't you playing that song anymore? No, he didn't. We were talking about other things. Actually about songwriting. Yeah. Okay, so live album. So when I think of how great you are live, right. I think, well, why isn't this on an album? And you have Patience, you mean? No, just your... Anything? Yeah, anything. Okay, so live album, radio. And uh, it might have changed because things have changed so drastically over the entire landscape of media and radio and I, I uh, podcasts and this and this, but nobody buys and nobody buys CDs anymore. But a live recording, you know, so and so live, it, they're just they never did back in the eighties or the, there's not a lot of live recordings that actually charted, and now it doesn't seem so important because things have changed. You know, mm -hmm. you don't need to be on the charts or whatever. But basically, radio isn't playing a lot of live stuff. They're, rec they're recording live concerts, podcasts, and this and that. But uh, there's not a lot, a lot of, you know, how many live records do you have in our live? How I much do you lot. listen to live? How much do you, would you keep putting on Curtis Salgado live? It, I'm afraid you, I would. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what would you too? Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe. You know. I don't know, but that was, let me say it this way. That was one of the reasons. Right, okay. If you got, I think, a Bruce Iglar in here, how many live Bruce Iglar records? Now, there's a guy that knows music. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a guy that knows music business. But how many in that catalog are live? Live. Not a lot. But I think one of my favorites is Lonnie oh, Brooks, you know. live in Chicago. You know, is that is that on Alligator? alligator? It's, yeah, it's yeah. a great album, and I listen to it 
still. Right. So, maybe. But the, I also. You know what? I always thought the same thing. You know, I mean, and this isn't. I mean, yeah, I was yeah. been told this by basically live record. You're taking a gamble. Da 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 da. Whatever. You know. Uh, but I cheap up, trick was right. about the last one, or or Peter Frampton. Well, you see, you know, but that's when I grew up, right? So I like I, Peter Gabriel's live records, excellent. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I certainly want to make one, and there's no doubt about that. Maybe it's time to do it. I but that's it why we haven't done one yet. Right. It's because... Well, it makes sense that you say that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like sales, you know. And I know how I'd do it, too. I know, I know what I would do. It would cost a lot of money, though. Because you record the whole tour? I would no. I record. I would record more than one night, and I would bring. I would have a big band, and I would have. It'd be a two CD set. That's what I. There's, I yeah, that's what I do. But I. I there's just and something. And we'd have two loose in it, full. Full twenty-minute version or something. Yeah. A whole side. A whole side, <laughs> with the introducing the band and a drum solo and uh, you know bringing you know. <laughs> but but the other thing is just having a record of your live performance. Yes, that's a good idea. I'll talk to Bruce about it. Yeah. We are right here. I say do. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh oh. Cops. I'm out of here. <laughs> that sounded like my knock. Yay! It was the uh, pretty bad knock. I'm Jim. Did you need some friends? Yes. You were oh, Jim. Look. Scary. This is Bruce. Hi. Bruce. Good to meet Hi. you. Jim, good. Tell me your name again. Marco. Marco. Thank you. You got mics everywhere. Nice coat. You're getting ready to uh, go in a little bit. It's dinner I'm sorry, time. We're in the middle of. Uh... We are. No testing. One, two. Well, this is perfect because uh, I just told him with the tape off where we were, where we came from, and how I met you, and back in the day of. Uh, you even remember? I don't. I remember. Yeah, I'll help you. So go ahead and ask me the question. So Jim Pugh has just. Graced us with his presence, and and we were talking about how the two of you know each other. Well, I'll start like this. And uh, um, when I was in the Robert Cray band, we used to run up and down I five, all the way from Vancouver, BC, down to San Diego, and then we'd cross over, you know, towards the Rockies. We'd um, Idaho, Arizona, Colorado. That and that's about as far. That was our our route for years, and in this route down in the San Francisco Bay Area and Oakland and San Jose area is a huge contingency of all the music you could possibly want. I mean, jazz, blues, soul, funk, Latin, Latin jazz, on gospel. All of these people, plus a large black community and a large Hispanic community and just this huge music community. And we used to play this place called Larry Blake's off of Telegraph Avenue. And Larry Blake's had a basement 
in, in Berkeley. Ber in Berkeley, California. And Berkeley um, was hip, still is, and uh, in the basement was this place called the Ratskiller Club. It was just downstairs of Larry Blake's. And that was really where the, the center of activity where um, Jim and I met. And it was a, a club that was peanuts and sawdust on the floor and everybody played there. I mean, I remember seeing Sheila E., who later went on to play percussion for Prince, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Peter Escobar, her, fa her father. Uh, you'd see everyone from uh, Eddie Taylor to Carla Thomas, and then all these musicians that would back up Charlie Musselwhite or Luther Tucker or Jimmy McCracklin, and he can name off some that I can't think, you know. And he was one of the guys in the house band. There were several rotating piano players. But uh, the Robert Cray Band fell in love with the house band, who was Jimmy Pugh, Carl Severi, Kevin Hayes. Kevin Hayes, by the way, is from the Hayes family. His sister was Bonnie Hayes. And uh, Chris Hayes was a guitar, founder of Huey Lewis and the News. And then Kevin Hayes played drums. And um, Bonnie Hayes is like what the... Right now, she's like the head of... She's a songwriting chair at Berkeley School of Music in oh, Boston. Yeah. Wow. I mean, immensely talented people. And the Robert Cray Band was rubbing elbows with him. And that's where Jim comes in. He was a fantastic piano player. And eventually, because Robert started to morph, once he hit it big, by this point I wasn't with him, but once Robert had hit it big, uh, one by one, the Oregon contingency in Robert's band kind of evaporated, and Robert sort of absorbed the Rat Skeller house band, which included Jimmy Pugh, Kevin Hayes, and Carl Severi. And, and Tim. And Tim Kaihatsu. Tim Kaihatsu's on Stand Back, Charlie Musselwhite, you know, good songwriter, um, Japanese American. And uh, you should look up Tim Kayotsu. So, Jim, when, when you were in that band playing as, as the host band, what, what was your goal as a musician? Was it just you're happy playing in this house band, or did you have a... Um, there, that's an interesting question, because um, it was still a part of my idea. Was to, I was trying to learn how to play. And so in any circumstance that I could play in, I was, it was good. I always gravitated towards that. Um, and it was a, the Rat Skeller, the Rat Band was a, a revolving bunch of musicians. A lot of them went on to very successful careers of one kind or another, but it was this whole kind of amalgamation of people. So we played like with, we backed up Otis Rush, we backed up, uh, Otis Clay, we backed up, I don't know, you could go by names, but, um, you know, and, and I remember we played with Albert Collins. Well, you guys played with Albert Collins a lot. So it was kind of how we learned to play. I mean, I was already kind of in my late 20s by the time I was, I had played with Elvin Bishop um, before I played in the Rat Band. Um, so it was really, I, I wanted to be a singer, I wanted to be a song, not a singer, a songwriter. I wanted to produce records, um, and I wanted to really learn how to play. And I played both piano and organ, and I did it in a lot of different kinds of configurations, 
in a lot of different genres and played in a house band in different places. I did it for years at Slim's, which was um, in San Francisco, was owned by Boz Skaggs, and he had a house band, and we played in that, and we played with, I don't know, all kinds of people. So, and Curtis, I was a huge Curtis fan. I'll tell you a great story about Curtis that you may not know, but I saw the Robert Cray Band in Golden Gate Park at the San Francisco Blues Festival in 1979, and it was Stevie Ray Vaughan, you guys, and Louis Myers, I think. Anyway, when <laughs> the Cray Band came on, I thought that Curtis was Robert Cray. And then someone said, well, no, he's the black guy. And I went, oh, well, that must be, and I thought it was Richard, because Robert was really somebody who sort of stood off to the side. I remember you guys had, Richard had matching shoes and a bass, and the guys danced. You guys did this kind of thing, this choreography, and I was just blown away. I mean, they were just fabulous. It's like, as a musician, when you hear music that you go, yeah, that's it, I've been looking for it all my life. <laughs> that's it, and it really was, so. It had a huge impact. So when you play in a house band like that, and you play with all these great musicians, I presume that's a great learning ground. But I, I presume that if you're not good, it also brings down the whole level of music. Like, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm, what I'm trying to say is basically, so somebody comes in, Chuck Berry comes in and does this thing, and you have to keep up with him. And then next week you're playing with Otis Clay or Otis Rush, and you're learning every week. Like, is that an easy thing to do? And to, to, to get it to a, a level that's really good? You know, there, there's not a whole lot. At that time, it wasn't... Maybe it should have been, but it wasn't very premeditated. You just kind of did what was in front of you, you know, and that was it. And, it. and it was exciting because you really tried to apply... You know, we played with Lee Dorsey and, and Earl King and, and learned New Orleans music and... You know, New Orleans music is impossible to play. I mean, it's, you know, as is Chicago blues. I mean, being from Chicago, I never realized that the music I grew up listening to would end up being a career. It was never the intention. But I have pretty strong opinions about playing Chicago blues. I don't so much about New Orleans because I don't. It's not really part of my background. You know. But Curtis, you've played with different house bands. What oh, yeah. makes a good Band. You know, not different house bands. The I was only in a handful of bands. You know, pretty much the same one. And the two meaning I had a band that I was singing and blowing harp for when I started at eighteen and not playing music. I'd already been playing, but my first pain gig was at eighteen in a bar that if the OLCC came through the liquor commission, I'd have to go stand in the kitchen until he left, so at 18, you know. And we played in this one bar for years called the Roman Forum. And um, only backed up a couple of people. Then that morphed into a different band called Harold and the Nighthawks. And then Harold turned communist. He was the bass player from Milwaukee. He used to play with Jim Lebon and Short Stuff, which was a great harp player out of the Midwest. He was like the you know, the the unheard, unsung harmonica player that everybody was talking about. And he had a tight band called Short Stuff. And then Harold turned communist and it became just the Nighthawks. And 
we started backing up Sonny Rhodes, Jimmy McCracklin, Albert Collins, Charlie Musselwhite, um, Luther Tucker, Elsie Good Rock and Robinson. You play with Elsie? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yes. Frankie Lee. Too. Frankie Lee. Yeah, these are all the uh, same people. Ed, High Tide Harris. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I started bringing him up. And the very thing that he said, I was bringing him up to Oregon so that we could back him up so I could learn how to play with these guys. And, can you really and a little side note, what we discovered is some of these guys we were carrying, instead of them carrying us, we were carrying them. So there was grumblings in the band, like, "How come they're getting three hundred bucks and we're only making fifty? We're better than they are." You know, and to me, it was like, "Who cares? We're learning just the experience of being with you know." Can you explain? Be on stage with Jimmy McCracklin, <laughs> Lord, you know. There's a Albert Collins was a class act. He was fantastic, but there were some pretty surly guys there. I'm white from the white community, Caucasian, Eugene, Oregon. And these guys are, you know, from Texas and from the South. And they've been around the block far more than I learned a lot from them. You know, Sonny Rhodes taught me a lot. Sonny Rhodes. Sonny Rhodes, that's right. And uh, so you were going to ask me, but, you know, you're talking about, that's it. Some of these guys we were carrying. Right. And some of these guys were carrying, you know, teaching us, like really dynamic people. And... Um, put on great shows. That's how I learned. Okay, so last week I was... Does that answer your question? I think so. But last week I was at a a conservatory of music and we were filming a master class with a cellist and he was sitting down with a a piano trio and a string quartet and they were playing and he would listen to it and then give advice and say, oh no, this part you should do this or this is what you need to do. When a musician like Sonny Rhodes or Albert Collins comes in and in place they don't sit down and tell you what to do no, no. no. so how you do you to learn figure it, you have to figure it out mm-hmm. and there's people I've worked with Cray in particular who if you have to ask them how it goes it's not a good thing you know you have to it's not a matter of what's said it's a matter of what you can figure out you have to open your ears and think and feel and then forget all about all that and just play so but how do you know you're not doing it right you don't, and let, well, you don't know how you know. You know how you know if you're done doing it right. The phone stops ringing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that is, you know. And there's, what was it like when those you... those guys would just get through it? I would imagine if they're sitting there with a bad backup band, you know. We backed up our Collins. We we loved his music, and we did our homework. That's right. I'm not saying we sat there. I mean, our homework is listening and playing. We knew how to shuffle and play in the pocket and play a groove and let Albert do his thing, you know, and he loved it. Plus, we got him to play less. Instead of a 20-minute song, we got him to play short tunes, play Don't Lose Your Cool, you know, three minutes and 36 seconds, you know, play it like Then we'd play something else and, you know, Diane Flew or don't lose your cool or whatever and we got him I think you guys probably did but I thought we we kind of helped him get away from playing because pickup bands if you're an Albert Collins or whatever you got a pickup band they don't know your music who they are these guys are kids you're going to pay them so much and so you just play uh, Sex Machine not by James Brown but the one by uh, 
sliced home, which went so Albert just jammed and just covered time by playing two songs for an hour and a half <laughs> you know long songs so if I was to ask you what did you learn from that ex- these experiences of playing with these musicians can you quantify that yeah, I mean, when you're playing with somebody like Collins, and then you, he realizes that you know his stuff, and you're just the thrill of it sitting there and, and listening to this guy play guitar unlike anybody else and back him up. It's, it's a language. There isn't anything like, you know what, to this and play an A-flat seventh, but drop the, you know, that, that isn't happening in this. They're not. It's just like hanging out with this guy more, not what's on stage musically, but just business and how he acts, how he acts on stage, how he gets, wouldn't you say, and the, how he relates to the audience and how he can put the audience in his hands. Right. You know, I mean, Albert was so charismatic and unreal. I mean, just going with his guitar and your hair's on and it's not from volume it's just at the right place at the right time it's just like an ice pick or it just hence the name you know hence the name yeah it's just like wow you know is it true that you you gave the name that's what i you know stage presence that's what i'm trying to say okay is it true that you gave the name master of the telecaster yes it is that is true so how'd that come about i had to write a poster and I wrote this poster. It was like, okay, here's my job. We had a uh, a manager, sort of manager guy that got us gigs. Basically, at this real quick, put a pin in that one. How did I meet this guy? He came up and goes, God, you guys are amazing. I'll do anything you want me to do. What do you want to do? Give me a job. Do me something. Okay, go down and get these brothers down in Oakland, California, and drive them up here to Eugene. <laughs> and his name was Buddy Akasich. And Buddy Akasich went down and got these guys along with someone else and it was like sunny roads and we got albert collins drove up from la and we put on a a concert i I just i kind of put on the first my brainchild was to put on a blues festival and rich it was richard Cousins says see if we can get albert collins i wonder you know so we you know buddy went out and did the stuff he had the academic way of you know and he went drove and got these guys so for me, uh, um, I'm kind of drifting off here, but oh yeah, I was making a poster. So I had to make a poster. After doing about four or five of these things, we started bringing up Sunny Rhodes at a club, just the Nighthawks backing up Sunny Rhodes, Luther Tucker and Sunny Rhodes, Elsie Good Robinson and Sunny Rhodes, you know. And Sonny and I had become close. We'd bring him up to Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, and, and I'd play with him. So I had to write and make up a poster. So I made up a poster, and the poster was, as you know, I can't remember who it was kind of like. It was like, Telecaster, what's he do? He plays a Telecaster. And it was master, the master of the Telecaster, Albert Collins. And, and that stuck, right? And that stuck. <laughs> and then they, it, somebody picked it up, and it ended up in print. And then it ended up print. And Albert, Albert even, you know, gave me credit. Robert Craig gave credit to another guitar player in the band I was in. His name is Jim Cochran. But Cochran never lifted a finger. He didn't make the poster. I did. Hmm. And I came up with the title, Master of the Telecaster. I mean, it's not rocket science. It was just, what's he do? What am I going to say? You know, you're trying to write one of these old blues posters. Right. 
And, you know, we used to have um, double trouble, triple threat. You know, that was one Richard Cousins had because it was Nighthawks in the Robert Cray band. And one day I came up with, you know, you had to, you had to print, so you have to put it all out on the piece of paper so that when you put it through the printing thing and all that, so master of the Telecaster, Albert Collins. Well, that's cool. Jim, yeah. I, you know, we're going to have to wrap this up, but since I have you, I'm just going to ask huh. you, when and hopefully one day I can interview you on your sure. own, but when you were playing as a house band and all of a sudden you wind up joining the Robert Cray band, what was that like for you? Well, at the, uh, it was great. I mean, I was a huge fan. Um, at the time I was playing, um, and about three or four, besides playing in the rap band of Blake's, I was playing in about three or four other bands at the same time. I, I was playing with Etta James. I had done that for, I think, almost seven or eight, maybe seven or eight years before I played. I started started playing with Cray in 1989. Um, and certainly, um, at that time, the only other person in the rap band that was in it was that played with Robert was Kevin the drummer. But you know, the thing is that happens, and it happens certainly with Robert, is it was really kind of like, a lot of times you play with musicians and you don't have the same point of reference, you know, or, and, and it's not always identical, because everybody has, I have different tastes, no matter how much Curtis and I might agree about things, we have different tastes in music of things we prefer, or ways that we might want things to sound, but there's a commonality that we have. And that really was the case working with Richard and Robert and with the Memphis Horns. It was really like, I mean, working with the Memphis Horns, I just tried to absorb, they were so heroic to me. Um, I just had lunch with Wayne Jackson, with the with Wayne Jackson's widow, Amy, and we talked about, I mean, it was just, it meant so much to me. So, but it was really like, almost like coming home, because I was around people who know a whole lot about what my real passion was, and so if I talked about a gospel quartet or uh, you know some some Stax record that, that was made in Memphis that they played on, and they could show me the parts. And Robert, Robert really is somebody who can play and sing like anybody. I mean, he used to do those. Was it Dixie Hummingbirds or the one of some of those things? He'd sing it note for note and play it. He'd play the guitar part. And he, so, I mean, being around that kind of talent really raised my, um, not seriousness, but the, my devotion to it really was elevated. You raise your game, that's all there is to it. You're in a circumstance. I had done some stuff recorded in Nashville without a James with the Muscles, Muscle Shoals rhythm section and Teeny Hodges and Reggie Young, and it completely, um, I was in way over my head. And it wasn't, I wasn't in over my head. Plus, I liked Robert. I'd known Robert and Curtis and Richard for years, and they're really great people. So it was really like, sort of almost like a homecoming, it really felt like. Wow. So what, while I have you here, I just ask one, ask one more question. I just got the Chris Kane album, and it says, you, you're involved in this album. Yeah. And it says, For Little Village Foundation. What is the Little Village Foundation? Little Village Foundation is a nonprofit that uh, a record company that I started after um, I left Robert, and it's this is the third year. This is the beginning of the fourth year, and we will just released 
now total 24 CDs, and it's everything from, oh, this year there's a record that we did that's in Hindi, um, one in Russian, um, mm -hmm. there's a gospel record, there's Chris Kane, it's kind of blues-centric to a degree, it has been over the years. Um, we've recorded a, a, a Filipino-American woman singing in Tagalog, um, so, and the idea generally, just to kind of put it, is that uh, diverse music, when it's held together, um, builds empathy and makes for a better community, better world. That's the, the tagline. So the, and it's, it ha I, I've gone from playing the piano and playing the organ to learning about running a nonprofit, having a board, and I've spent a lot of time um, grant writing, learning about grant writing and, and making appeals because I raised money and I frankly tried to make some kind of a, a percentage of the income that I used to have when I worked with Robert. And slowly it's kind of really working out. There's a lot of people, Curtis included. Curtis sang with the Teenage Mariachi from, from Bakersfield. Um, wasn't that impressive? Did you like that, Curtis? Oh, yeah. No, Definitely. He Definitely. sang a Bobby Bland song and they played it. Wow. And that's the kind of thing we really, really like. So, Well, I'm looking forward to hearing this and many yeah. other things. Curtis, thank that's you. That's one of the baddest blues records out recently in the last three years. Well, you know, when I interviewed Chris about it, I mean, he said he had done a recording just for himself. And I guess you had heard it and thought he should come into the studio. Yeah, and Kid Anderson was the person I work with that he's... You should interview him. Yeah. Right? He's, he's frankly... Kid brilliant. Anderson is everywhere. Right? Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's amazing. I interviewed him many years ago in Norway when he was just a young uh -huh. kid. So it's it's amazing to see what he's done and what yeah. he's currently doing with all the amazing production work that he's doing yeah. on top of the music he's making. So Yeah. But um, thank you both. Thank you, Curtis, as always. You're, you're a hero of mine, and it's always a thrill to talk to you. Hear what he said? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did I tell you about saying that? You know, we're equal. I look up to you. I don't. You know, I'm. I'm honored you'd say that. Going for the crime. And what about? Going for the crime. <laughs> <laughs> I. I can't believe that you did not say that. Oh my oh, God. Jeez. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's so LA. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Thank you, Curtis. Peace, brother. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.